What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. A Google glitch shares a parent company Alphabet sinking over 4% today as it struggles to get its footing in the AI race. Google's now fallen into negative territory for the year. Why can't this once unstoppable stock seem to get out of its own way? Plus, opportunities abroad. Buffett's Berkshire is betting big on Japan, and the ambassador is here with us with his own picks in the region, where he's got a yen for investing. Oh, Later, my. What a new entry in the weight loss drug battle could mean for the giants in the field. Bitcoin bounces above 54,000 and takes the rest of the crypto space with it. And zooming in on Zoom earnings, where shares of the pandemic darling are going next. I'm Melissa Lee, coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ. On the desk tonight, Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. We start off with yet another stumble for Google in the AI race. The company saying today it will relaunch its Gemini AI picture generator in a few weeks. The software, which just debuted this month, was pulled on Thursday after users reported historical errors and dubious responses in its output. Shares of parent company Alphabet dropping more than 4% today. Notable standout today. They're now down uh, more than 10% off the highs of the year. And today's move puts the stock in the red for the year. Alphabet has been far underperforming its AI rivals, Meta jumping 36% this year, while Microsoft is up 8%. So why does Google seem to be struggling so much in this AI space, Guy? I think it's a number of reasons. First of all, I think they have a messaging problem without question. At that emergency meeting, remember a few Mm. months ago, to talk about different things, I think they're doing a really difficult, they're having a difficult job explaining how they've been in AI probably longer than any other company out there, maybe not named Microsoft or Apple. But I also think to a large extent it has to do with all these high-flying tech names that have taken their thunder away. I mean, why be in a Google that's going to move maybe a couple percent over the course of a couple weeks as opposed to an NVIDIA or a Micron or a Broadcom that trades up 2 3% seemingly hour to hour on a daily basis? So I think that's part of the problem as well. Technically, it's a third problem. If we could put up a chart, I mean, the level we just traded up to with the same highs we made back in December of 2021. So now the technicians will look at this and say there's a major double top here as well. So there are a litany of things to be concerned about. Of course, valuation has always been compelling. It seems to be going down on the same things all the time. I mean, it's always a concern about where it is in the AI race, that it's falling behind, that its product isn't as good as Microsoft or other competitors, that maybe there are uh, upstarts out there that will eat its lunch anyway, but down on the same things. Yeah, so going back to the BARD launch in January of 2023, right, this was after ChatGPT came out, three and a half, I guess, and really took the, the whole tech community by storm. It really surprised a lot of folks here. And, you know, it's just really important to note that this stock was trading at $90 back then, okay? So it closed today at 137 and a half. So, it, you know, Tim will mention it, it has kept pace with a lot of the stocks once it kind of got back on its horse. I think what Guy's point is, it's just the narrative. This is a company that going back seven years said, 
said it is an AI first company. They spend a lot of money on machine learning, you know, tens of billions of dollars probably over the last decade or so. So the fact that they could actually have an upstart like OpenAI really kind of eat their lunch in a way, you know, that is now going back 14, 15 months or so. At least that's been, you know, publicized. So here you are now, and then it comes down to something that has been a really difficult topic within tech over the last six or seven years about who are programming these systems, who have access to these systems. This is the reason why this stock is down a lot today in particular. The whole tech world is in a bit of a backlash here. So I think investors are shooting first, asking questions later, because they don't have a whole heck of a lot of confidence that Bard or Gemini Advance is going to be re-released as something that's going to be up to snuff with the ones that are doing well right now. But if the concern is who has control over the algorithms and what these models spit out in terms of being able to, you know, massage history or whatever you want to call it, misinformation, why aren't all the tech giants down then? Why isn't the indictment made against all of the companies that have the same problem, theoretically? Because they've done nothing. There's been no wow factor here. And, and I think about it more from playing defense. They can't play defense in an environment where we're on the cusp of people approaching search in an entirely new way. Um, Dan brought this up, you know, where are the places I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to necessarily be doing anything different with my phone than going to Google. But if I'm sitting at my desktop, you know, Microsoft might have a shot where they never had a shot with Bing. Um, So I I think that's part of what's going on here. I mean, you can look at other of the mega cap names and you can look at Apple and say what's going on there. Apple's underperformed the S&P by 16 percent since early December. It's down five or six percent year to date. So it's really underperforming. And we're not really attacking Apple under this construct. So I, I do think all of the headlines around AI are that it's a challenge to the legacy business, not playing offense like Meta and obviously like NVIDIA. But of other names that it's not really the core of what they do is to make AI chips, um, it's really Meta and somewhat Amazon and everybody else. They, they own search. So let's start off with where their strength is. Right now. They, they own search right now. But when you look at AI, this is their own mess up. They did this. They have an agenda. And the problem is, they, they did this, not the other companies where you said, how come everything is not down sort of in sympathy? This is their own mess. They have to clean it up. So can they clean it up? Will they ever be trusted to? And, and when you look at where AI came about, they were lagging. Dan touched on it. They were lagging from day one. And when you look at the chart, I knew I, I was, guy was in my head. I was in guy's head. When you look at that chart, that double top, you know who else suffers from that? Amazon, almost. So for now, Google, I sold my Google today. I don't think they're capable of fixing it on their own. And I think they're idiosyncratic with the rest of the tech space. Are we being too hard on Alphabet? I think so. Because this is not the first time we've asked what is wrong with Alphabet. I feel like I've, I've fought their corner. Yeah. You know, you man, have, I, you I am definitely. Who's some of the more famous boxing like managages that you corner want in your corner? Corner people, actually. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the fight doctor, Dr. Ferdy Pacheco. Okay. That so would call, be your type call of guy. Call me the fight doctor. You know. But I, I, I think this is a case where um, Google's performance is, is something that over the last year certainly has been absolutely fine. Over the last two months, it's been awful. And it's been awful relative to a couple names. But, but, but I, is it? Is it, is it, isn't it not their fault last spring when we were talking about the same thing? Um, I, I don't know, because I'm not sure we really know how to value anybody's AI business. I agree with the, the, the line that Dan said, which is that they've done a terrible job communicating their strategy to markets. But I'm not sure we know what anybody's real market is. Again, outside of it gets back to that, that question we asked that one day where we asked, is the pie any bigger than it was mm-hmm. entirely in the world in terms of either enterprise or consumer dollars or whatever we're calling the marginal erosion? In Google's case, right now, the market is assuming that there is not just marginal, that there's very real erosion in 
their core search business. And I'm not sure that that is right. I look, I think there's a lot of people out there looking for opportunities to buy weakness, especially significant weakness in some of these names. Look at Meta. Suddenly, you know, everybody hated Meta at 10 times and now they love it at 24 times. And I do think you could see something like that with Google. I agree with you that there are certain assumptions being made to the attack on its core search business. But isn't it just sort of just the fact that it is unknown, that the impact is unknown? And let's say Google is standing in place with its AI offering and it's not that great, but that it is not enough. What they have is not enough to be a moat to defend their current search business. So they even lose a percentage of that. Sure. And every percentage is something to the stock. Customato. Customato. I'm sorry. That's my bad. No, you bring up a great point. And then my pushback would be that's why it's valued with a market multiple as opposed to some of the multiples a lot of these other companies are seeing. Well, we'll see about that. But the flip side, another side of this coin, Mm -hmm. multifaceted, is if you think somehow magically this whole high valuation, high growth tech stock trade is going to not implode but start to go the other way, you're going to find safety in names like Google 100%. I think the dollars will find their way there. Yeah, I'll just mention this, though. Like seven years ago when, you know, Google, Alphabet first called it, I think there was still Google back then, said they're an AI-first company. They had nearly 79% gross margins. They're expected to have 61% gross margins. So if you talk about a monopoly that they have in and around search, which is one of the best, you hear tech luminaries say it all the time, it was one of the best business models ever built. And then you have that sort of monopoly, and you're starting to lose it, and it's becoming less profitable, and all of a sudden, now there are upstarts out there okay like a perplexity or something like that mm-hmm. people are talking about companies like that the way they were talking about google challenging incumbents 20 years ago okay so think about that and so that's how technology works so to me i think that it probably makes sense that you have this underperformance i think it is a show me story i think there will be some layoffs some high profile stuff i think there is pressure i saw uh, deirdre bosa this morning on tech check talking about the the sundar under pressure that mm-hmm. sort of thing that's how you have to affect big change. That's how you have to get better marketing. Um, you're, they will come out with a better product, and it will be retooled, that sort of thing. So you almost want this thing to get hit really hard, to trade way below a market multiple. S- sounds like up. another guy standing in his corner, maybe. Uh, yeah. And again, right, Mickey. Mickey and Rocky. Or Kevin another Rooney, one. right? Mickey, another Tyson. Burgess Meredith. It's one of his best roles, really. Yeah. Mickey well, Golden, I mean, no, no doubt about it. Well, he was also like in control, the Mel. Riveting as this Well, but we didn't do any ha- – usually we start with housekeeping. Welcome back, Steve Grosso Thank on vacation. You. Tim Thank Seymour you. on vacation. Welcome back, Welcome back Melissa back, yeah. Lee. Some of us just worked right Henry through. And yesterday, yesterday was Finnerman's birthday. I know. Yesterday, I'm pointing over my shoulder. Sorry. Back this, to you. This, this is, just to put one last ball on it, this is Google's problem. We're all making this way too complicated. This search issue that they had with the, uh, not factually correct is their own issue. This was totally avoidable. This is something that, that was their agenda. They shot it out, and they're paying. Sounds like an opportunity. I mean, well, for who? Well, for Google investors right now to well, step in. Well, it sounds in. like a very fixable problem. Yeah. If that is the if problem. If they want to fix it. That is, why wouldn't they want to fix it? It's factually incorrect. They did it. They did it on their own, so they have an agenda. Well, let's, let's get to our guest here. Even with Google's stock taking that 4.4% hit after today's announcement, our next guest still has a $175 price target on the stock. Oppenheimer's Jason Helstein joins us now to talk about why he sees so much room to the upside. Jason, great to have you with us. Um, why, why do you think Google's been underperforming over the past couple of months? I understand you can pick any sort of different time frame, but within the past couple of months, what do you think is its, its problems have been? What can Sundar Pichai do? Really, it's, it's really a lack of confidence and leadership. Probably the, the best example would be, this is like uh, you know asking somebody to get in a Waymo that will only go 20 miles an hour. 
no one's going to want to do that, right? So right now, um, the company is putting too many guardrails on their AI because they're too concerned about, you know, the criticisms, and they just have to kind of lean in and, and stop being so defensive. So you're saying they actually have the technology, but they're sort of throttling it to make sure that there are controls on it because they're doing that and they're still spitting out incorrect or dubious results. So what kind of guardrails are that are they? I mean, none of us know, you know, how well the technology really works under the hood, right? But what we do know is this is a company who's who knows how to index the entire internet better than anyone else. If you look at the data, um, you know, I look, you know, if you look at the, the usage of Google's from November to January is is up three percent according to similar web. Bing is up seven, but as a percent of users, um, Google is still like ninety-eight percent. If you look at percent of searches, um, they're at ninety-one percent. And going back a year and a half, they were something at like ninety-two, right? So the point is that this company knows how to index and find information better than any other company in the world. And the question is just why won't they allow that information to come through? And um, again, it just seems like there's, you know, just too many training wheels that have been put on uh, on their generative AI product. And it's actually hurting the, the output um, to the point where just investors have lost confidence right now. But Jason, it's, uh, it's Tim. Thanks for joining us. Does, is search behavior about to change, I guess, is my question to you in a way that Google's former dominance, and you talked about those numbers every time people count them out, uh, and I know you're, you're going Lou Duva on him, fighting their corner as well, uh, footnote Sandy Kennel. Um, your thoughts here? I mean, because if search is about to change as we know it, um, it really opens up the playing field. Again, I think what people were really excited about with ChatGPT was just how it, it had almost like a human-like interaction, right? And it captivated consumers. I could basically have a conversation with a, cons- with a computer way more efficient than an Alexa or a Siri, okay? You know, but when people actually started getting into fact-checking, there were a lot of issues, right? And so what people have been using generative AI for is the automation of tasks, right? Like put something in, summarize it, right? Which again, the, the, the thought is Gemini actually does that pretty well, but the criticism is really when you're using it more like a search, you're asking it a question, right? Like who is better for the world, this person or that person, right? Or create an image of X, Y, Z, and it won't do it, or the image just kind of doesn't make sense. And so, you know, ultimately, you know, Google is giving you, you know, typically we use it in business, right? Like four or five results and you use your intelligence. They go, this is the one I want to look at, right? You know, do we get to the point where it just gives me one? Um, and again, it just seems like we're still kind of very far away from that. But Google should let Gen AI do what Gen AI does, right? Which, which is you're asking it to automate things and et cetera. So again, like I think we all need to see kind of what this looks like without the training wheels. And that's really a, like a management decision and then being willing to basically accept the criticism, right? Like it will be an imperfect product, but like let it function. Have you talked to management about letting the training wheels off or about the loss uh, of no. investor confidence? They, yeah, no, no they're, uh, they don't take much uh, criticism from uh, sell-side analysts on that. Well, I thought maybe, maybe on the conference call. Uh, Jason, great to have you with us. Jason Helfstein. All right, so I don't know. It's, 
let the training, is it as simple as that? Let the training wheels no, I mean, I, I think these guys all have it. I mean, like, like listen, some th- things need to be tweaked. Some people need to go. They need to actually have a re-messaging. They need to relaunch the product. I mean, this is a product. We did our little demo a couple weeks ago. They don't even have an app yet, right? Obviously, they own Android, and so that was like a, you know, a, a, a thing that they wanted to focus on first, and that's got great market share globally and get the free product out there. But, like, this is not great, right? But this is one of those things I think we'll look back and be like, Eh, it was probably just a blip. Unless, to Tim's point, does Microsoft with Bing and you know ChatGPT4, do they start to make some inroads? Do some of these upstarts um, start to do that? I think it's also important to remember the last two times that this company has reported earnings and given guidance, the stock has gapped down 7.5% and 9.5% respectively from 52-week highs. So investors have been willing to take it back up after these sorts of reports, but there are some problems in their business that are not at least living up to uh, investor expectations, right? I mean, efficiencies is one problem. I mean, if they had a year of efficiency (laughs) like Meta had, I think like rebranding that would be amazing for the stock. It'd be a lift. Th- th- this, this is something where I bought it thinking they were going to catch up in AI. I thought this was going to be their year for AI. When you look at it in NVIDIA, there's nothing that you have to, no qualm over. You have your chip. You know what you're getting. You know that they have an 86% market share there. Google has an over 90%. We heard Jason talk about the exact number. Over 90% market share in search. It was theirs to keep in AI, and they don't have it. It's interesting because when Ruth Porat took the helm at, at, mm. at Google Alphabet, whatever we're calling it, the, it was about to be the year of efficiency. It was going to be transparency into all the different structures. Some of that really worked out of the gates and some of that has stalled. All right. We've got a news alert here on Chevron's acquisition of Hess. Pippa Stevens got the details. Pippa. Hey, Melissa, well, Chevron's saying just now that it may not complete the acquisition of Hess within the time frame the company anticipates or even at all. And that is thanks to uh, ExxonMobil and China National Offshore Oil Corporation uh, saying that they have a right to a first refusal provision in that joint operating agreement for the offshore Guyana asset. That, of course, is why Exxon uh, wanted to acquire Hess because of Hess's 30 percent stake in that Guyana offshore project. Now, Exxon said that those conversations will continue and that they owe it to their investors and partners to consider their preemption rights in place under their joint operating agreement. Now, uh, to be clear, it is not sure at this time if Exxon will actually make a counter bid. But for right now, they are saying that they have the right to do so, with Chevron saying that it could then delay or possibly uh, cancel their deal to buy Hess. Melissa. All right. Pippa, thanks. Pippa Stevens, uh, that's quite a turn, Tim. It's quite a turn. It's interesting because Chevron did not rally on this deal. Um, this, right. is a, this, is, this is the most exciting oil uh, you know, exploration site in the world uh, and a place that people are fighting all over, yet it wasn't rewarded. Uh, if, you're buy- if you own Chevron here, um, I-, I don't think the lack of this deal follow-through is, is alarming. And, in fact, uh, their ability to pay down debt over the last four years and, and be able to break even, even on their dividend around $45 oil um, is reason alone to buy Chevron, but I think this is a world-class company. That's the takeaway. The stock sold off when they announced it, and it's selling off when it looks like it's not going to happen. So they lose both ways, which is typically what happens to me. But this is a stock, I mean, you talk about valuation, 11 times next year's numbers, balance sheets such that they were able to announce a $75 billion stock buyback a couple falls ago that seemingly marked the top of the stock. So I think, again, these big cap integrated names, you're buying weakness. All right. Coming up, a Berkshire backing. Warren Buffett's company upping its stake in the land of the rising sun. But where exactly should you be in the trade? Our emerging markets specialist, Ambassador Tim Seymour, Mm -hmm. lays out his picks in the region next. 
Plus, Bitcoin's fabulous February. The crypto surging nearly 30% so far and on pace for its best month in over a year. The stocks and proxies benefiting from that bounce when Fast Money returns. This is Fast Money with Melissa Lee, right here on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently, and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Berkshire Hathaway shares hitting a new all-time high before pulling back today. Warren Buffett's company reported record profit and cash levels over the weekend. It's also upping its bet on Japan, saying it's increased its holdings in five very large, highly diversified Japanese companies. The average stake in those names now standing at nearly 9%. So if Warren Buffett is all in on Japan, should you be? We asked our emerging market specialist in the house, the ambassador Tim Seymour, for his top pick. So, Tim... What are your uh, yeah? I mean, look, I've, I've, I feel like I've been bullish on Japan for a long time. It's one of the heaviest weights in the international ETF I advise on, and it's a case where Japan, to me, it gets better and better because the macro around it is we know deflation is over. We know, if anything, the Bank of Japan is actually no longer going to be targeting the yield curve, but. Down to companies themselves, the payout levels are growing. There's pressure on them from the Tokyo Stock Exchange to actually increase those payout levels. So the three names that I think are the most interesting, and again, these are the three of the heavyweights in iDevo, uh, Mitsubishi, MUFG is the ticker. Uh, it's, it's clearly the J.P. Morgan of Japan. You're getting it at 0.9 times price to tangible book. The spreads on their loans, both international and domestic, seem to be growing. Certainly a lot of efficiencies in the banking sector. Sumit, Sumitomo Mitsui also trades in the New York Stock Exchange, trades over here in ADR form. Uh, and it's another one of the big banks in Japan that I think have become more profitable. Watch out for yen strengthening. I mean, it, we, we talk about the yen weakness. That has been fantastic for Japan. And the ultimate beneficiary of yen weakness is Toyota. So Toyota Motors would be the third name, and it's had a massive run. It's up 28% year to date. We've had a lot of really interesting conversations on this desk about the evolution of hybrid EV and, and where that may be where the story is in the competitive landscape in the U.S. You're back to pre-COVID levels on SARS. Toyota as well positioned as anybody here in the U.S. and globally. That's Japan. When, when you look at Japan, I agree on Toyota if you want to talk granular stocks. But when you look at it, I, I, I like it going through EWJ. But if you, if you go back 34 years or so, it, that's, what, that's how long it's taken to take out that top. So we don't know, is this a double top? Could it, could it pretend a fall from here? If you look at in inflation rates, they're falling pretty precipitously, and that's been a catalyst. That's been a tailwind, so I'm not sure if they've proven themselves, but I like Toyota. 
Toyota's, I mean, if you look, the prior all-time high, I think, was 200-ish around January of 2022. We blew through that. Maybe you get a back and fill to that level. But the EWJ, I think the all-time high was 73. We're within earshot of that. So granularly, Toyota, absolutely, you're looking for pullbacks to buy this stock. But none of these stocks are actually in your acronym for the year. Is that correct? What is the acronym? Well, so... Bicep. The I in oh. bicep is IDVO, right. which oh, is right, the ticker right. of this international right. ETF that grows payout levels like a lot of these Japanese companies. Right. I'll just say this for Japan, who took four decades. We did. We did they, a, yeah, look at that. Look how, look how happy I look there. I mean, <laughs> we, I, we put, bicep. I, <laughs> nice job. I mean, I, this, look, at the family dinner table, people sometimes can be friendly, too. And this is that's I don't deserve the bicep. Um, but. I'll say this about Japan. We've waited four decades for them to go to fresh all-time highs. I think the charters would say this is the kind of a breakout that's actually interesting, and it's probably got some ways to go, in my view. All right. There's a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. (laughs) Just a few weeks left in winter, but crypto seems to be thawing out early. The big moves in Bitcoin and the proxy players seeing a boost. Next, plus more gains out of the weight loss drug trade, but this time it's a different Danish pharma stock surging. How this company is trying to tip the scales. Ahead, you're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to Fast Money. Bitcoin on a tear this month, up almost 28%, closing back in on the $55,000 level today. Rival crypto Ethereum doing even better, soaring nearly 40% in February. And crypto proxies like Coinbase, MicroStrategy, and the Grayscale Bitcoin ETF are all coming along for the ride. How much higher can this crypto trade go? Tim, I think you're thinking hopefully higher with Coinbase. I, I think it can go higher. And again, I, the Coinbase is my proxy. Everybody's got different proxies. I think people have overthought the dynamic around the Bitcoin ETF and the, and the fallout, because if anything, all it does is signify there's a greater addressable market. There's greater uh, follow through. It's interesting because yields are kind of moving higher. Uh, if anything, you know, we've got some Fed speak this week. We have a PCE on Thursday. Inflation's sticky. And, and less Fed, less dynamics have been great for Bitcoin. Um, but I, I just think the institutional adoption has, has made it uh, kind of an all clear. There's obviously plenty of deliberation about where in the cycle you want to be. Oh, oh, good, Dan. Oh, I'd love to hear what you Quickly, say I was going to say, it. you've mentioned their balance sheet. Steve talked about this. Robinhood's breaking out of, like, what is Louisiana? What she used to say? The longer the base, the higher the higher space. space. Everybody at once. So like they keep getting more course. revenue from the crypto. That's and their book. balance sheet's very good. And we've had this basing formation for the last two and a half years. Now it's trading north of 15 bucks. I mean, this is a stock that looks like it wants to go higher from here. Yeah, I'll just say this. So the proxies, so you guys just mentioned two different ones. I think his is probably better at this stage than yours because everyone knows that one. But I think what's become really clear is that if you want exposure to Bitcoin, then buy Bitcoin. 
buy an ETF in your IRA, buy spot, but you know what I mean? That, that well, sort of now thing. now that's an option. Yeah, but, well, well, but my point is, is like, but why have all the idiosyncratic risk of a company that has competition, that has to maintain margins, that has to do all this stuff? Just buy the Bitcoin. Yes. I'll, he, tell, you, he, I'll tell you he, why. But you I, own it as well. It's not as if you don't. Do I, I own Bitcoin. I own Ethereum, but I, I own Coinbase and I've owned it for the last six months. And, and my view is that the on-ramp to digital assets has been Coinbase. And, and so unlike buying a MicroStrategy where I think you really have a Bitcoin, you know, since you have it on your balance sheet, that's kind of what you're buying. Um, I think in Coinbase, you have, you have the margin, you have the opportunities and other products and other assets. I realize it's not simple, um, but I, I think that's the point. I actually think that there's a greater profitability that's not priced into this stock. And, and I think you get the higher beta on it. So I'm long Marathon Digital, and I'm also long IBIT. Higher and beta I'm, on the proxies. On the, pro, on, on the proxies, correct. It was up 21%, 22% Marathon Digital today. IBIT was up 6%. So I own them both. We joke around. I joke around call it a Texas hedge, right? So you own, you own the futures and you own the cattle, but you get that outsized uh, performance based on that. So Ethereum is the one you buy going into the ETF approval process, which should be happening in the summer. All right. Coming up, the weight loss drug battle is expanding. A Danish pharma stock that isn't Novo Nordisk is surging in positive drug results. What it means for competition in the space and whether the new player can be a heavy hitter. And some after hours action to bring you shares of Zoom and Workday on the move after reporting results. The details out of those quarters when fast money returns. Back in two. Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money Stocks. Kicking off the week in the red, the S&P retreating from its record high notch last Friday, down nearly four-tenths of a percent, the Dow dropping 62 points, and the Nasdaq down about a tenth of a percent. Shares of Domino's Pizza, though, jumping nearly 6% after its results this morning. The restaurant chain saying it will raise its dividend by 25% starting March 9th and increase its buyback program by an additional $1 billion. And some stocks hitting records today, Hilton, TJX, Costco, AbbVie, Waste Management, just some of the names at all-time highs. And Amazon also trading near its highest level in more than two years after its first trading day on the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the stock replacing Walgreens Boots Alliance on that index. Let's also check in shares of Expedia, the company announcing it will cut 1,500 jobs, almost 9% of its workforce. It will take a charge of between 80 and $100 million related to those layoffs. Um, a new experimental obesity drug from Danish company Zeeland Pharma is stoking investor hopes about the wider health benefits of weight loss treatments. The company's latest data showing significant improvement of fatty liver disease in patients studied in a phase two trial, sending Copenhagen listed shares of Zeeland soaring 35 percent. For more on what this means for competition in the obesity space, we are joined by Jared Holes, healthcare sector strategist at Mizuho. Jared, it's always great to see you. Uh, what's interesting about this is that they squarely address MASH which is this fatty liver disease, and not obesity. And yet there's this jump that this will be an obesity drug. Right. Um, it's debatable whether that's going to come to fruition or not, I think. Mm-hmm. When you've got two major players already, the study not designed for obesity, designed, designed for fatty liver disease and a bunch of other um, metabolic diseases that kind of like underlie that condition, um, we just don't know. I mean, it's interesting. Um, Altimune is working on a similar construct for obesity specifically. Um, I think we just have to wait a little bit more until we kind of figure out what this MASH market actually is. Because as, as of right now, it seems like it's a subset of, of obesity. Right. And if Lily and Novo can kind of address 
the more mild to moderate population. We just don't know how big these other drugs are going to be. The study is sort of, uh, it's, it's not, I don't want to say it's not a clean study, but there are some differences. Um, it's, it looked like it's, it studied people with less severe MASH um, in terms of its stages, whereas uh, Lily was looking at more severe cases. Um, it also, as you pointed out, uh, deter, you know, studied a certain molecule that they have plus terzepatide, so we don't right. really know what the efficacy is. Does this, is it possible that the notion is that it addresses the MASH market, which takes away one potential driver for the obesity drugs, or, or is that just not? Yeah, I mean, I think that's how a lot of the street is looking at it. There are, there are different pockets within this MASH market. I mean, it, there are complexities to it we don't have to get into now, but there are there's mild to moderate, there's severe. It seems like Zealand and other competitors that are going after this um, specific indication are kind of looking at the more severe patient populations because I think Lilly and Novo would probably tell you the same thing. They think that the, that the glips are going to work for the mild to moderate, the F1 and F2 patients in this particular category. F3 and F4, potentially Zealand, Altimmune, Madrigal, which is going to supposedly get their drug approved next month or it's on the docket to get approved. So maybe the moderate, mild to moderate Lily Novo, more severe, which is a smaller subset of the population, goes to, you know, these smaller biotech companies. But sort of just, you know, taking a, a bigger view of this whole space, I mean, does this just sort of, you know, a week ago we never heard of, or the general population, you may have heard of Zeeland Pharma. Right. But we, we never discussed Zeeland Pharma ever on right. this desk. It never came up in conversation. All of a sudden we're talking about Zeeland Pharma listed in Denmark. Right. Um, does this just sort of 50 bucks, the guy, if you can name the currency in Denmark. Fifty bucks. I'll take it out of my pocket uh, right now. Kroner. Ah, oh, come on, Well, you just on, came man. back from Copenhagen. Nice. He didn't know that. You came back. All right. From Fantastic. <laughs> anyway, you still owe me fifty. Um, right. Does this yeah. sort of underscore the notion that there are competitors or potential, you know, companies out there developing potential drugs that we just have never even heard about? Yeah, for sure. For like, for the you know institutional investor that is not just trading healthcare stocks or just biotech stocks, there are so many of these. I mean, we've discussed structure on here before, Altimmune, Viking, the list goes on, Corbis, Turns. There are many of these small players that are all kind of angling either towards obesity, towards a pocket of this market like fatty liver disease. So we're going to keep on hearing about it. And it's so obvious that there are more of these players. Roche did a, de a multi-billion dollar deal buying a private company late last year. There are going to be more of these that we, and I'm sure, you know, I'm missing a, a lot of them. But doesn't this tell me then I should be selling Lily here? I mean, if you're telling me there's a competitive landscape where everybody is, is yeah. catching up and we're paying, you know, look, an, an extraordinary tech-like multiple for Lily. Yeah, the one thing I would say, Tim, on this thing is when you consider the investment needed just to kind of manufacture and then commercialize these drugs, given the market size. We saw what Novo Nordis did a couple of weeks ago with $11 billion purchase of just three manufacturing facilities. And Lilly is kind of earmarked, I think, at least three to four billion this calendar year for that. I just don't know how biotech companies in this construct of, of the market that we're talking about can afford to do that level of investing. So I think for the time being, Lilly and Novo but What happens way when, ahead. say, you know, Merck buys them? And then, you know, right. I mean, big cap farmer, and, and yeah. then suddenly that big cap farmer is in a great position to throw all the bankroll they need at it. I think that would be that's the trade right. that if you think that there's going to be a consolidation wave here, Merck is going to get into this market 
AbbVie, we've already seen AstraZeneca do a deal. We saw Roche do a deal. There are going to be more competitors here. I just think Lilly and Novo still, at this stage of the game, a lot of these data sets that we're talking about here with small cap biotech are very early. I just think there's there's time. So Lilly has three quarters of trillion dollar market cap sitting mm-hmm. on top of $50 billion of revenues next year. What does that revenue number have to be to justify that type of market cap, in your opinion? Mm, it's got to be close to pretty close to 100 billion in time. So can, okay, fair enough. So can they double revenues in the next, because that's the math, right? I mean, doubling revenues over the next year and a half to justify the value. No, no, not in the, not in the next year and a half, but in the next three, four, five years, it's feasible. Still, I think that's, you know, a little bit liberal to assume, mm-hmm. but I think in the next few years they could, certain, certainly not next year. But all, they have all the cards. They have the, they have the best drug in the category. ZepBound just launched at the end of the last year. We're kind of in like the, you know, top of the first inning with that. So I think there's time. And yes, I think it'll grow into the multiple. It's been an incredibly awe-inspiring kind of like stock to just look at in the framework of healthcare. Just we don't, we don't see these moves too often. Even Moderna only peaked to $250 billion at like, you know, during the craze of the pandemic. And here we are. This thing is 750 So, yeah. Jared, great to have you. Thank you. Thank Jared you. Holes. For an in-depth look at how obesity drugs have reinvented weight loss culture, be sure to tune in this Thursday, 10 p.m. Eastern, for the premiere of my new documentary, Big Shot, The Ozempic Revolution, that's right here on CNBC. Right on. Coming up, a sleeper software stock and a fintech company poised for major growth at a big discount. Those are two of Julie Beal's top small cap picks in the names and why she thinks time is now to look for big opportunities in these smaller names. Plus, some after-hours action in the cloud, Zoom and Workday on the move after the latest results. We'll have the numbers and the latest commentary from the calls next. And during February, we are celebrating Black Heritage. Here's a CEO of M&T Bank. As a black CEO of a Fortune 500 company, I may be an exception. But it's important to remember that there are many exceptional people who create positive change and inspire others every day. Black Heritage Month gives us that opportunity to celebrate the many exceptional, absolutely extraordinary people in our black and brown communities across America. Money, a double earnings alert for you. Zoom video surging and extended trading uh, up right now by just about 9%, 9.5% after beating on the top and the bottom lines. Meantime, Workday moving in the opposite direction. That stock is down by more than 8% despite an earnings beat on Q4 revenues that were in line with estimates. CNBC's Pippa Stevens has a detail on both of them. Let's start off with Zoom, Pippa. Hey, Melissa. Well, it wasn't only a beat for Zoom, but also upbeat guidance with Q1 revenue and EPS estimates ahead of expectations. Revenue from its enterprise customers, a key growth division, also ahead of street account estimates, with full-year enterprise revenue rising nearly 8% year-over-year. Now, Zoom also announced a $1.5 billion buyback and said it saw average monthly churn of 3% during the latest quarter, which was down slightly year-over-year. Now, shares of Workday taking a hit despite better-than-expected earnings numbers, with the company reiterating its full-year subscription revenue guidance, Vital knowledge is Adam Crisofuli noting the largely inline report could be an issue for investors who were hoping for more upside. The company also announced plans to acquire Hired Score, which is an AI-powered talent software company, though shares down more than 8%. Melissa? Pippa, thank you. Pippa Stevens. Zoom, yeah. you may recall, is what? Oh, the Z and Zebra. Z and Zebra. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. 
Well, here's the deal about Zoom. So 34% of their market cap is in cash, a very profitable company, 78% gross margins, been left for dead. And that's one of the reasons why I was looking at it this year to kind of outperform a little bit here. So when they talk about a billion and a half, uh, you know, buyback, I mean, that's just accretive. The stock trades at 13 and a half times. So to me, I actually think this company gets taken over by the end of this year. But right now, I mean, a beat and a raise is good enough. You're just talking about high multiple uh, software type stocks. And here's Workday not living up to expectations. Well, it, it's it's been a roller coaster for high multiple software companies over the last couple of weeks. Obviously, you had Adobe, you had Palo Alto, you had a big, big comeback in a couple of those stocks, too. But uh, look, uh, software uh, today, along with semis, same old story. All right. Coming up, a small cap opening. One of our fast money traders says the time is now to get into the space. Julie Beal will make her case and run us through some of her big ideas. More fast money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Small caps might be the next place to look for opportunity, according to Fast Money trader Julie Beal. She says that no matter how you pick them, the group is attractive. She is here to share some of her picks. Hey, Julie, nice to see you. Hi, so you think guys. As a group, small uh, small caps are trading um, more attractively than, than mid and large? Yeah, I mean, they're inexpensive relative to mid and large, but they're also inexpensive relative to themselves historically. They're kind of trading at multi-decade lows. And to me, that actually makes a ton of sense, right? Small caps tend to be more cyclical, more sensitive. It's harder for them to raise capital in difficult times. And they are still in a bit of an earnings recession. But if you kind of look under the hood, you can find small cap names that are much higher quality and that are actually growing their earnings. And they're not that expensive. So I think it's kind of an opportunity, if you are willing to do the work, to find some really nice little undiscovered gems. One I would think of was a company called Blackline Technologies. This is, you know, kind of in the sleepy domain of accounting software. But what's wonderful is their founder has returned to the business. And I think that's always a great sign when you get the founder back in the business and they can focus on the things they really care about, which in this case is running the product and not talking to like sloppy investors like me, yuck. Um, and I think they're really starting to turn their profitability around and there's still a lot of low-hanging fruit for, for this business. So I think it's an interesting and, and compelling opportunity. The other one I like is Indava. This is a business that you know has been able to grow revenue over time. It's also founder-led with a strong ownership interest in the business. And what this gives you is the opportunity to participate in a lot of the fintech and payments markets, but without having to choose who the winners are going to be. Indava is an IT provider, and so they help you decide who you should be using to upgrade your technology suite, but they're agnostic as to who that is. And so they're in this really nice position where they leverage their reputation and they give you a compelling value proposition in terms of how to install and implement all that software. So I think these are two interesting businesses. Both of the founders run the business and they own a lot of uh, stock themselves. So you're aligned with them. And that makes a big difference for long-term investors. Julie, in terms of the stocks, and Davis might be so bad that it's good. I say that because Morgan Stanley and HSBC both downgraded the stock last month. I think JP Morgan initiated neutral, but all the price targets have been raised to about 80 bucks or so, which is significantly higher than we are now. Is that it? The stock's just so depressed now that people are finding value? Yeah, I think there's pressure in terms of where they are in their cycle and the momentum in their business. They had a lot of momentum kind of coming out of COVID. And now people are a little bit concerned that while the long term looks really good, the near term, it's going to be hard for them to kind of keep repeating that business. But I I think if you can kind of look through the valley of that, it's still a real opportunity for investors. 
Do you need small caps as a group to trade better in order for these individual stocks to trade better, Julie? No, I mean, there are plenty of very expensive small cap names that are high quality. It helps. It certainly doesn't hurt when small cap becomes more in favor. But, you know, the quality rises to the top over the long term. There's going to be near term periods where small cap just is out of favor no matter what you do. But I think you should always have at least a small part of small cap in your balanced portfolio diet. All right, Julie, great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Julie Beal. Anybody here in small caps right now? I tell you, small caps, I think, are the ultimate growth kind of mm-hmm. uh, conduit. If you yeah. feel it's happening and if you feel and, and clearly they have underperformed, we've we've wrestled with when those turning points are coming uh, underperformed year to date. Yeah. You- it, so my Westrock is as close as I can get to a small cap name, my portfolio. But when, I like what Julie's doing. She's sifting through all the rest of them for profitable companies because 40 percent of the IWM is unprofitable. So they've lagged so far behind. What she is going to make a lot of money on is when we start cutting rates, this whole group should outperform. She's crawling through the wreckage. <laughs> Dave Edmonds. Dave Edmonds band. Yeah, nice. Who was in Rock, Rock Pile. Pile with Nick Lowe. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Mel. Well, that's what happened. Oh. Dave Edmonds cares. <laughs> Nick Lowe cares. Up next, final trades. That's how much I care. <laughs> <laughs> Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim. Yeah, enjoyed that Japan conversation. So Tokyo Mitsubishi, M-U-F-G, the J.P. Morgan in Japan trades cheap in my view. Steve. SoFi, great earnings report last go around. It gave some back. It's climbing and retracing. SoFi, technicals. Dan. Yeah, Rivian got trashed last week. I thought it would make a new all-time low. It did. It might fill in that gap back towards 15. I'm seeing it on the Twitter. A lot of people love the rock pile, Mel. So you're in the minority on this one, I'm just saying. But welcome back, Steve, Mel, and Tim. Good to be here. Happy birthday, (laughs) Karen. Uh, Chevron, CVX on the sell-off. All right. Thank you for watching Fast Money. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.